Fiat is something that makes us desperate so that we have to do things we don't want to because that is how the system is designed. It is an exploitative system that is designed to hurt you and steal from you what is rightfully yours. This is what Bitcoin is. Like it is the most pristine presentation of logic that we have ever encountered. And because of the pristineness of that logic and the profoundness that it offers to us, it becomes the most monumental event in humanity because it returns us from nihilism towards truth. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, we're talking to Eric Kaysson, Bitcoin philosopher, crypto anarchist, cypherpunk, and author of numerous essays on the ramifications of Bitcoin. In this episode, we discuss so many topics from philosophy, history, politics, to praxeology and religion. And thanks to Eric, we'll explore them all through the lens of cryptography. This is a packed episode, so let's dive in. But before we start, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way to support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost on a value-for-value podcasting app like Fountain or Breeze. If you get value from the show, please consider sending some value back. And if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Orange Bill app, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description, and we'll be talking a bit more about them a little later. And so, without further ado, here is Eric Kaysson on the Freedom Footprint Show. Cha-cha-cha. Eric Kaysson, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to join you, gentlemen. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of your work, and... Uh, you're a fellow Bitcoin philosopher, one could say, and uh, one of the deeper thinkers in the space, I think. And uh, we met briefly in Miami uh, last year. I think we met like what, what, two of the nights or three of the nights, like hung out with a bunch of aggressive maximalists. Uh, that was real fun. <laughs> Shitting on shit. Good time. And yeah, yeah. And. And as as we were joking earlier, like we we didn't actually give ourselves an opportunity to really go deep because I think that's most of what we were doing the whole time. So yeah, so it was nice to be shallow for once. So yes, let's, let's see if we can go deep for today. How are you, man? Everything good? Yeah, life life chugs along. It's a uh, first like real day of summer for us, so it's nice to finally be shedding layers and stuff. Oh, nice, nice to hear. Yeah, I saw your recent interview with Breedlove. Uh, very interesting stuff. I didn't know you were working on a book. You were working on a like Bitcoin philosophy book. Yeah, essentially, uh, I'm I'm taking all of the essays that I've wrote over the last five years and I'm kind of consolidating them and updating them. Because um, mm-hmm. really, through the pursuit of that, I've realized that like uh, I've essentially stumbled onto to what I think is a, a much more profound philosophical implication vis-a-vis Bitcoin. And I think only through sort of tracing the the intellectual development of my lineage that you that people can essentially go, oh, okay, like what's essentially occurring and what he's seeing is that cryptography in itself in our age where everything's digitized and you know we can meet 
when we're tens of thousands of miles apart. This opens us up to a totally new territory of human interaction and networking that's never been seen before. And once you can really grok and understand that cryptography itself exposes us to this new form of sovereignty, there becomes an opportunity for a totally new dynamic political destiny for what is offered to humanity vis-a-vis Bitcoin. Yeah, 100%. And I, uh, yeah, I say this a lot, like the more I travel and the more I, I mean, I've traveled a lot as a child and as in, in the b- way before Bitcoin as well. So I've seen, seen a lot of countries and the more countries you visit and the more border controls you see, the more ridiculous they become. And especially when you have video conferencing and uh, like a network of people, they, like you and I could probably reach anyone we wanted in the world at this point, if we, if we gave it a bit of energy and tap into like all of humanity via social media and then video conferencing. And we have Bitcoin on top of that. And it's just like, this is going to change everything because this, this whole notion that different rules should apply to different people based solely on where they happen to be born is just false. And it's, it's, it's not something that we we chose for ourselves. It's something that has been imposed on us because, because of this, you know, assholes in our ancestors past that took stuff from one another and started erecting borders around what they claimed were theirs. It's like the, all the emperor's clothes are falling off at the same time here. And, and living in this Instagram is upsetting and enraging because it's like, we can logically look at it and be like, yeah, like people should have equanimity. If I go to another country, the same rules should apply. Like we should actually have a true rule of law. And yet we exist in this day and age of fiat where the literal accounting mechanisms for what we ascribe value to is absolutely destroyed at the bottom because of the way that, you know, governments can unilaterally change those number of units. And it's, uh, you know, I, I can't help but think of the Henry Ford quote where he says, you know, if everybody understood how money worked today, yeah. like there'd be a revolution, a revolution tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. That's a great quote. And like the Bank of England today literally, literally uh, uh, wrote an article, posted an article about how people should, you know, have fun saying poor, basically. Like they should, they should get used to being poor because you're, oh, sorry, guys, you're poor now because we didn't turn off the fucking printer. And the, well, and, and, and I want to point out, like, we can kind of laugh and joke about this because it's been going on so long and, and sort of the, the slapstick comical nature of it. But at the bottom of it, I want to point out, like, we should be absolutely outraged. Like, these people are robbing from us. They're lying yeah. to us and they act like it is in our benefit. And we should be pushing back and letting them know, no, absolutely not. How dare you mess with the money supply with the core values of our society? And now with Bitcoin, I don't have to play in this idiotic political game that enrages me. I can just say, I would prefer not to. And, yes. and you know, and, and that's a, that's specifically a, a reference to Bartleby Scrivener. And, and it's a story of a man on Wall Street who he operates as a Scrivener for a lawyer. And one day he, he just makes a decision. He's going to refuse to participate in any of it. What's a Scrivener? A Scrivener is somebody who takes note. It's somebody who used okay. to classically do all the writing for a lawyer all right. and they would like all right. okay. write okay. out all the contracts. Yeah. Okay. And so in this short story that essentially the Scrivener starts refusing to do anything because he, he's just upset about sort of the low level BS that is given to him. 
And what's really important to me is that it shows a choice. And like, to me, that's what Bitcoin is about. It's about a fundamental decision that we all make for ourselves to say, I will not participate in fiat anymore. I will not participate in the exploitation of the global South anymore. I will not participate in stealing from my children and their ability to save wealth for themselves. And that to me is the most important philosophical and political destiny that we have in front of us if we make that decision together. Oh, would you describe yourself as an angry person? Like, are you <laughs> angry? You know what's interesting? I, I would say, yes, I am an angry person. And I would say Bitcoin has helped me address that in the most logical way that I can, because before it was just pure rage. There was nowhere to direct it, nothing to direct it at. I was angry at myself, at society, at my parents, at everybody because of how dysfunctional everything is. And so essentially, you know, I, I am an angry person, but Bitcoin helps me apply logic and understand that there is a way to actually win now. And before I didn't have any way to win or to fight back against this system. Yeah. And I think to me, that's the thing that's helped me address my anger in a meaningful way, at least on this larger societal level, like pl plenty of personal problems yeah. still that I'm trying to address, but it's helping. Yeah. I, I used to play in metal bands or uh, hard rock bands and grunge oh, bands yeah. and like that really helped me with th that was like an outlet for my an anger and I could be more content and more like uh stable uh in the in the rest of my life because i had that outlet to just scream it out and and just be angry at stuff and i would say lately like not lately but i, I i'm a born optimist i i think and I, I i want to be an optimist i want to be a happy person and i like i'm i'm not gonna let stuff in the outside world uh hinder that like i i i refuse to let the the outside world hinder my happiness. So my like my core philosophy is like they're happy, I'm happy. They're not happy, I'm still fucking happy. I, I don't give a crap. So so like and that's what I try to live by. It's hard sometimes, and uh, I would say Bitcoin and uh, praxeology and learning about human action and all this Austrian economics has given me a a a, a much greater appreciation appreciation for for people in general. Like that every. Every person on earth is a consumer and every person on earth is a, an entrepreneur uh, in, in some sense of the word, like, and, uh, they contribute to, to, even though the, the free global free market is handicapped and is a dog on three legs because of the money printing and all the borders and stuff, still everyone participating in it contributes like every supermarket cashier and every uh you know car mechanic is is contributing to the betterment of, of of mankind and that that kind of appreciation for people didn't exist in me before i used to be way more cynical until and until i started like really appreciating the free market for what it is like that it 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 is progress and and even though these I'm still angry with the politicians and the assholes that hinder this process from happening that that's the frustrating part like but but people in general and people who just happen to grow up and uh, land in a role that they didn't choose for themselves, which I, ironically enough, I think is true for most politicians as well. They they just end up being and 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 they they aren't imaginative enough to question themselves, so they keep playing the same game as their parents played or like as, uh, someone else played, and they think it's the moral and logical thing to do, and they fall for all this bullshit. They think theft is. <laughs> ethical uh and 
Just well, I don't the, think they can even connect the dots there. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of what Hannah Ardent wrote uh, in Eichmann on Jerusalem about the banality of evil. And that, that she points out, like, he, he can't even get to the place where he's understanding that he's making a decision of, between good and evil. Like, that's, that's not even no. in his purview of thought. And I think for most politicians, that's the same. They're, there's never an opportunity Absolutely. for them to hey, is there something wrong with inflating the money supply and choosing the winners and losers? And they go, well, no, because we're choosing the right winners and we're choosing the right losers because we love the environment, so we need to support wind and we hate coal and gas, so we need to tax them more heavily. But they they don't honor or respect the fact that there's someone that needs to run a generator because the the hospital has lost power and these people will die if they they don't run their you know their gas fired generator and same thing on the other side they don't acknowledge well if we put these wind turbines in into an area that's going to kill large amounts of birds like there can be an an ecological collapse in that area and so i think it's really important and this is one of the places that bitcoin's really helped me is to to deeply question and to pour over the questions again and again and to ask are you wrong you know, it's really important to consider that because if, if like with Bitcoin, if there's some great mistake here that we're not seeing, I want to know about it first so we can correct it. Cause I'm interested in Bitcoin for the truth it has yeah. not because of, of, of what it presents itself as otherwise. Yeah. Same here. Like the longer I'm in it, that's, that's what gets me going. That's, that's like, what's really kicking me to the, to like understand more about it and about human beings in, in general and, and what we do to one and to anyone listening to this, like this is not a critique of green energy or wind farms or anything like that. It's just like the people who get to make the decisions, they are, uh, I mean, we may have our opinions. I, I may think one thing, Luke, one thing, and you one thing. But the thing is, the choice shouldn't be theirs just because of some stupid popularity contest that someone won. So, so, so all the incentives are wrong, so they make the decisions uh, in order to be more popular and not because resources, because humans actually want resources to go to these things. And that's, that's what's so, what's so skewed about it. And I, I, yeah, I think you agree with that statement. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I, I think it's really important that we start trying to, to pull back and go back to these very kind of basic first principles of do we all have, you know, and like one of the things I find the most interesting is that they're, there's such a strong celebration around the idea of what democracy is. But when we really yeah. start talking about, hey, is there collective decision-making happening here? Yeah. And people start scratching their heads and go, well, no, but, but we don't know about money and maybe we shouldn't do no. that. And we're not the experts. And we need to go, whoa, 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 hang on. This is not about being an expert. This is about having a choice and a decision in what's happening. And I think it's very important that people understand that. This is not democratic in any way, shape, or form, not Republican. It has nothing to do with these ideas that we celebrate. And if we actually want to honor those for what it means, we really need to consider how do we want to run the money supply of the globe if we're all actually participating in this economy in a meaningful way. And also just to to note on the point you made earlier, the other thing about Bitcoin that I've found is that uh, it also helps me really celebrate people and meet them where they're at because... Now, in this new monetary system, the respect for labor is actually honored in the same way that the respect for capital is honored, that is not happening in the contemporary system. And to me, that's really beautiful oh. because no longer do we need to abandon 
the idea of making beautiful things in labor because we can't make any money in it. So we got to go gamble in the financial stock markets. But now there's a bias back towards labor so that people can actually look at developing their craft and honoring it. And when they save money, they can actually keep that instead of having it debased forever. So uh, I'm curious as to what, like, because I I think about Bitcoin, I'm a philosopher all the time, as, as you know. So like... <laughs> what kind of an obsession what, of ours. Yeah. And and uh, I, I find it so fascinating that no matter how long you do this, you come to deeper and deeper and more and more insights about it and what it is and what, what so so what's your latest like deepest thought you had about this thing like what's where are you what, what parts of the depths of the rabbit hole are you what cavern sub caverns are you exploring at the moment I, i'm like in a sub 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 cavern yeah, um, yeah. me but, too but, but we but might to, be in two different ones <laughs> to, to, to give you a bit of a fire hose um so I've been working through Heideggerian ontology recently, and most specifically, uh, kind of one of his last larger pieces that he had presented called the event. And from my experience reading through it, what I think Bitcoin is doing is it is forcing us into the logical conclusion of what cryptography means in our globalized digital age where statism and fiat have so pervasively reigned that they have actually replaced the very idea of what truth means mm -hmm. with authority itself. And because of the way that Bitcoin inverts that function of uh, insisting that truth, not authority, is the final bearer of legitimacy, uh, oh. I see this as almost like a mind virus of logic where yep. we're forced to go through the entire concourse of human history and war and understanding that cryptography has always been an inherent art of secrecy in war. And that now at the total end of nihilism in this collapsed society of darkness and lies and falsehood, Bitcoin presents itself as this extremely radical light of truth because of the inherent truth that it must have in mathematical accounting. And that essentially presents itself as a saving power within the extraordinary danger that is the internet and the state's ability to control it as a panoptic device. And I see cryptography as being a counter to that panoptic device. And then Bitcoin specifically inside of that, it being a radical, self-sovereign economic tool that utilizes cryptography in, in order to ensure its total sovereignty over any nation state. And I think in seeing that, when you finally like get that light, to me that this is the most important part is how it radicalizes an individual through the direct exposure of them to the truth and people being able to see and understand that a capital T truth does exist and that that ends up becoming a rescuing power from the nihilism of modernity. Beautifully put. And uh, this is, uh, I love the parts like, like that it's so focused on 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 secrets, on keeping a secret, because let me lay out my my latest the rabbit hole deep dive and see if we can find something here that's that's like a, a new strain of thought that uh, cool brings it somewhere, because a couple of months back or maybe even longer, I, I started thinking about like if if your seed phrase, uh, if you remember, if you memorize your seed phrase and the only place it exists in is in your mind, then you are your Bitcoins. 
So that that ended up in the book and everything, and like how you are, but you're becoming. But the more I think about it, it's like, well, ownership is ownership. You you own your headphones, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's a legal thing. Uh, uh, ownership is always within a legal framework. Possession is whoever controls the resource. So I can uh, I can own those headphones that you have on you, but you can say fuck you, Knut. I'm not giving them back because you're in possession of them. But there's a third layer here, uh, and that is ownership of a Bitcoin, because it's it's it goes even deeper than ownership or possession. It's just keeping a secret. That's all it is. So yeah. regardless of uh, if you memorize your seed phrase or not, uh, but if you are the one with the information about where the, the, the private key is, then you are those Bitcoins th- then also. Like, there's no distinction between you and those Bitcoins, because you're the one with the power to unlock. And the only thing giving you that power is your ability to keep a secret. Mm-hmm. So, so they're in your mind. You are these things. And when you think about it, computers, wh- what is a computer? It's a tool for something. Wh- what does a computer do? It calculates. Like it's ones and zeros, on and off switches in a sequence that helps us with one very specific thing. And that is mathematics. That's, that's what it helps us do, basically. Not, there's mm-hmm. not much else going on there. And uh, an, an ASIC uh, is very specifically a computer for a very specific set of mathematics. So it's just a very fancy abacus. Yep. So it's, which uh, in turn, it's just an extension of our minds. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not a thing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a tool that helps us. But, but really, when you have a chimpanzee that holds a grass straw and sticks it into a... Uh, a termite uh, um, mound, and termites come out on the grass. That's what the, an ASIC is. It's just a, a mammal using something to become better at something. So this means that the miners are not the ASICs. The miners are the people who fire up the ASICs and decide to follow this, this agreement on this fixed set of rules and play by the rules instead of cheating the system because it's more economically viable for them to follow the rules than to try to cheat the system. And that's the beauty of the thing. Your node that you run at home, like you're, you're running Umbrel on your Raspberry Pi, is that your node? Hell no, you're the node. You're the one making the choice. It's all predicated on human action. You're the one making the choice. So the miner yes. is the person. The Bitcoin owner is the person. The the node runner is the person. Everyone in this is a human being. So that means that I am Bitcoin and so are you. So by extension, I am you. You know what I mean? Yes. And yeah. this is something that was true all along. This is the most fascinating part is that if you really think about what my Bitcoin is, it's not money, it's not a commodity, it's not digital gold. It's just a mathematical experience uh, experiment that unlocks this thing this way to conduct human affairs uh, within us that was in us all along. And the only thing the equation did was unlock this insight that I am you, and therefore our incentives should be completely aligned. And in Bitcoin, they are. are. They are. Like Bitcoin companies don't even have to engage in catalactic competition. They don't have to compete at all. They can just collaborate because everyone wins when Bitcoin's purchasing power goes up. So all of our incentives are aligned. And at its core, it's because the only thing Bitcoin did was unlock the insight that we are one another. 
<laughs> and that's like, yes, fuck, this is, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm like, we, we could only, uh, this could only be necessitated in a world of nihilism where we've become so estranged to that idea. Exactly. That I think I am my own unit. You're your own unit. We're in competition. I'm in danger. I have to be schizophrenic yeah. about trying to keep my money. Yeah. Everybody could be lying to me at any point in time. So I have to defend myself. And then we get to Bitcoin where now we've upgraded to a new language where in that language, it is so pristine and clean that we can only speak in affirmatives or negatives. And so now with the, this language that's so pristine, we can have a true fusion of horizons where the language allows for us to see that our incentives are totally aligned, that there is no way to lie to each other. And, and one of the things that I find the most profound is that now I have this gift to give to other people where I say, I love you and I celebrate you enough as an individual that I want you to have access to the exact same form of monetary and wealth system as I do. There's no way for me, anybody else, any nation state, any army, any military to destroy or take that from you. And I want you to have this gift so that we can share in it together and spreading that through the globe. And I think to me, Bitcoiners are getting this. They're seeing that real vision of that. We are the individuals who have been given the opportunity to rescue humanity from nihilism. And to me, this is the most important part. If we don't do this, we will be trapped in a panoptic cage of technological AIs controlling us forever. There won't be enough. This is the thing. This is why I'm an optimist, because how could we not do this? Every person who, who just stumbles up into the rabbit and just, just briefly touches it will sooner or later like end up in the same thought process, if they're an intelligent person, at least. Like, they will also come to these insights sooner or later. Like, there's, yes. there's no way around that. And I, I, I never did psychedelics. I know, I know a lot of people that did. And they 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 uh, often ex- uh, describe the experience as as a, as very similar to these thoughts that we are one another and all of this stuff. Do, do you have a desire to do those, or is it just not not really in your I, purview? I, I do. Uh, it's just like I'm a family man, and there's there's just not very you, many uh, many yeah, having, you know occasions where where that uh, an adventure with that like that would be available to me. I don't view it as extremely important or anything i i think i like i'm capable of thinking without without them uh of course i'd like to try one time but i i think i get the the gist of it uh, everyone says that you can't really know anything about it until you're done <laughs> i don't know I, I it's another tool of the mind and it yeah. happens to be one that very similar to bitcoin until you do it, there's not necessarily a way to sort of understand and see your way around it. Um, no. With that being said, I think it's a valuable tool that yeah. uh, is helpful to some people. But you uh, know, what, our friend Yoni Appleberg, the the animator who makes the the movies from my uh, articles, uh, he's he's a medical doctor and he's deep into psychedelics and Bitcoin. Nice. Uh, so he's uh, and he has this great presentation on what they do is like they open up pathways in your mind between like smell and sound and like that that weren't open to you before that pathways that weren't accessible to you before and that's exactly what bitcoin does it opens up like you you can draw conclusions that you could never have come to 
before before Bitcoin. You 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 could never have connected those dots. So so in that yes. way, things are similar. And I, that's probably a, a good way of describing. Yeah. Well, and to me, this is one of the things that uh, why you know I have an article an essay called Bitcoin is Messianic. And the reason why is because when that connection gets made, you go, oh, like we can actually rescue humanity from the, the nihilism of fiat and the absolute yeah. destruction we're in. And, 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 you know, for me before Bitcoin, one of the reasons I was so angry was because there wasn't any form of exit. No. We were just all in no. an open air concentration camp that there was no escape from. And now we finally have an exit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's very fascinating. Yeah, would would that disqualify Jesus as a messiah then? I, it's funny because I get these different religious questions. Like I'm not an expert in any way, uh, um, and to me, like it seems to me that Bitcoin aligns quite perfectly with whatever Jesus was saying. Again, yeah, yeah. not a biblical scholar, no. but to, to me, like this is one of the other things that's so incredible is that like it we're not engaging in the same classical religious wars or any other bullshit, you know, like no. Bitcoin is going to respect a Muslim, a Buddhist, an agnostic and a Christian all the same. And but like even a Satanist, I, I do this a lot with the sure. Christian, with, with the Christian Bitcoiners. I do this. I recite the seven tenets of Satanism from Anthem LeVay and it maps on perfectly to Bitcoin also. So like, it doesn't matter. Uh, any philosophy yeah. will do. <laughs> Well, and this is one of the funny things people are like, but then all the evil people have Bitcoin and you can't get it from them. And I try to go, look, like I, I'm not interested in destroying the law in order to go after criminals because no. now we're criminals that don't have yeah. any law. I would much no. rather just have law that works unilaterally. And then if somebody breaks it, we go after them. That that's it. I want the rule of law, which is sort of ironic that as an anarchist, I'm the one that's preaching more about the rule of law specifically to the liberals than they even understand. Yeah, that is, uh, but it's so beautiful though, because you're for rule of law, not ruler of law. Like it's a different thing. If this is law that is applicable to every, every human being at any time, there's no ruler, there's a rule, but there's no ruler. Well, and, and, so, and we've never had access to this. We've always had the dream of it. We've yeah. always had the idea of it, but we've never truly had it. You know, and to me, this is one of the reasons why, why I took this path down philosophy is when I finally got that Bitcoin was able to have this obligation to itself, that it could be oh. this institution that could not violate its own word. It blew my mind because I realized that this is the opportunity for all of humanity moving forward. That now we get to have the truest rule of law that have, has ever existed. Yeah. We no longer have to deal with the solely bias of men who simply cannot help themselves but be liars. And that opens all of us up to a much greater opportunity. And that's going to transform us as a society on a whole. Because right now, the nihilistic, criminalistic instincts to lie and cheat and steal have been literally baked into society. You know, like, we have a ruling political class who believes they have a right to steal and murder people unconditionally. And to me, like that is a travesty and the greatest crime that could be committed against humanity. And we're here yeah. to write that. And they, they, they also believe that they have a right to, to control the narrative. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and that's a very, very dangerous thing. Uh, and I think that uh, like, yeah, Bitcoin is a wake up call, if anything. Well, and to me, that, that narrative is also what 
creates the design to then make enemies. And to me, like one of the other things about Bitcoin that's so explicit and important is that the sovereign is he who decides the exception. And specifically with the history of the 20th century, we saw a number of times that leaders of nation states said, those people over there are bad. Those people over there are going to compromise our society. Let's fucking kill those people. Yeah. But before we kill them, let's steal all their shit and then we'll destroy them. Yeah. And like this happened again and again and again throughout the 20th century. And it's so important to understand that this isn't actually about bad people. But it's more about the ability for the nation state to rob anybody and call it legal and that that can be applied to any person, including any listener on, you know, who's going to hear this and that you have no say in that. And so there's a predication that you could become an enemy of the state to be killed and robbed. And that is not going to, to be something illegal. And so you need to know and understand there are ways to protect yourself with Bitcoin. So that when you have your wealth in that, if you do have to flee from your home, whether it's from a wildfire or an earthquake or from the state coming to kill you, you can actually get out with some of your wealth intact. And that's never been possible in human history before. Yeah. And and if they come to threaten you to take it away, you don't have to give them all of it. You can give them a fraction of it and they can never know how many Bitcoins another person has. And that is true for everyone on earth. You cannot know how many, how much, uh, how many Bitcoins another person has. It's true for everyone already. So that's why, that's why I'm so optimistic about the future, despite all this effort, this imminent everything bubble collapse that we're facing and, and all of this civil unrest that would come with the fall of the fiat currencies around us. But still we have these we have these tools that are so powerful and, and that allow us to cooperate on on such a different scale. Well, you mean I, I mean you, you've been in Bitcoin a long time. You know you're probably just like me in a in a in a ton of uh, Telegram groups that do different stuff. And if what we're effectively doing is we're trading with one another and we're little companies. We're not we don't call it companies. It's just a fucking Telegram group with a bunch of Bitcoiners providing each other with value. And, and there's nothing stopping us from just doing that. And it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who you are. We can all tap into it. So that's that's yeah. the optimism part. Well, what do you think is like the the most dangerous? Like, like what's the threat? Uh, is the threat people being oblivious to this? Is the threat like that most people are sheep, or like what what's the biggest threat here? Uh, it's a little bit of all of the above. Like I, I think the biggest threat is the general nihilism that has people truly believe that the state is an omnipotent god. Yep. You know, frequently I'll have the conversation with people about Bitcoin. They, well, yeah, but like the CIA must control it, or the NSA's hacked it, or, or you yeah. know, whatever other bullshit they're going to say. And and I find that trying to overcome that is the most difficult. In addition to trying re- trying to really get people to grok and understand that, like. The state is not a good apparatus here to help us. It is literally a thing to rob and steal and hurt people. I'm like, let's just look at what the United States has done over the last 20 years in the Middle East and other places. You know, like this is a very dangerous thing that kills people. And we finally have an opportunity to resist that in a meaningful and thoughtful way. And I invite you to join us. And so I believe that like the, what we're going to see over the next 50 years is going to be the most incredible movement of people to turn away from the nation state and to turn to each other. And this is going to allow for us to rebuild community, to create new innovations, to 
do all sorts of things that uh, I think is really going to open humanity up to a possibility that we didn't think existed. And I think that possibility is true peace and what it could mean to live without fear or hunger or the pain of knowing that we can be robbed at any point in time. Yeah. Uh, and if I, if I look back at all my fiat jobs, like the, the desperation was in the, uh, you needed to borrow money to do anything, like to buy mm-hmm. a house, a house that your parents' generation built. Like that probably was your, one of your fathers, your father or somebody, one of your friend's father helped build that house. And they got better and better at building houses across the generations and still affording your own home gets costlier and costlier with every generation. And it's only because someone has access to print more money and it's so bad and it's so evil. It is. And like, I, I, I think it's so important for people to understand, like, like they took this from you. Yeah. Like we, we had an actual right and capacity to own affordable homes, to have access to land, to grow good food that nourishes us and rejuvenates us. And these people work together to steal that from us so that they could make money off of you. Like I, I wish there was some greater idea, but like, it's just the most banal, nasty garbage of that. They wanted to make a couple fucking euros off of you. And that's why you eat garbage and you live in a tiny box that you can't afford and that you have to slave away 60 hours a week at a place that you fucking hate. It's because the people want to make you into a tiny little cash register that they can pull dollar bills out of your butt every single week because they know you have no way out of it. And I think that that word desperation is such a good word to describe where most people are. Fiat is something that makes us desperate so that we have to do things we don't want to because that is how the system is designed. It yeah. is an exploitative system that is designed to hurt you and steal from you what is rightfully yours. Absolutely. I, I mean, my last Fiat job was as an HR manager for a shipping company. And I had like 250. I have 50, a hard time you as an HR manager. Yeah, yeah, I know. I have two. And uh, I... I <laughs> I did my best to play the part, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, 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 I thought to myself one day, like, look, look here, and this is in Sweden. So, you know, Sweden, uh, the Nordic countries have the highest tax rates in the entire world. And, and people think that those countries are nice because of the high tax rate when it's actually despite of it, we didn't, we weren't in the second world war, like, so we had a head start and all, all of the good things happened during periods of lower taxes. And, uh, you know, taxes on, on, uh, on small businesses are still fairly low compared to all sorts of other countries. So like that out of the way, um, so, so I pay like maybe 30, 35% tax, but then there's a fee that my employer has to pay the state in order to employ me, which is like double that. So that's actually a tax on me because the employer wouldn't afford me if he didn't pay that. So, so of course I pay for it in the end. Like yeah. you can't, you can't tax a company. You can only tax the employees of the companies <laughs> uh, because someone has to pay. It has to be a person the, these like businesses and corporations and, and governments and institutions that they're not real. They're made up of people. There's always uh, some guy that has to pay with his blood, sweat and tears for all of this. So say like there's a 60% tax on my salary. 
Uh, and then there's inflation on top of that. And VAT, whenever I buy something, and in the Nordics, they try to be, uh, they, they have all these, some, some things are subsidized and some things are punished. So like if you want anything fun, like uh, gasoline or alcohol <laughs> or nicotine or something, you have to pay a lot more taxes. Like, uh, so, so I would say that uh, including everything and including that if, if you include like the missed opportunity cost of uh, not allowing expo exponential growth in businesses, because like if you have um, if you have a, a farmer with an apple tree, and he can keep a hundred percent of the profits and and uh, afford a second apple tree the next year, he can double his business and then afford four apple trees the third year and eight the fourth year and so on. So a business that is not taxed can is allowed to grow exponentially, whilst uh, if you tax him fifty percent, he'll never get to the second fucking apple tree. So if you include that in my calculation of how much a slave I was. I was working at least like four out of the five days per week, not for myself, but for the state. So the state could kidnap my children and put them in the fucking institution each week. So I was there. And turning them against you in that institution. Exactly. So, so I was paying for my kids' kidnappers to, to, <laughs> to enslave my kids. And when you, when you start seeing it this way, it's like, fuck, why am I doing any of this? It's just bullshit, all of it. And like, luckily, I mean, if I hadn't found Bitcoin and uh, another way, and, and if I hadn't find, found writing and other means of, of uh, making a living, I would, I would be stuck in it. And, and most people are. They, they don't have the, 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 the option to make an exit. They're just forever stuck in this hamster's wheel or this rat race that leads them nowhere. So, so it's yeah. inconceivable. You know, and, and I think one of the, like kind of dovetailing on that for, for me, one of the things that was most important in my journey with Bitcoin was after I'd finally got it, like I, I really got that Bitcoin was important, but I was still in fiat world, still in my fiat job. No. And I remember talking to my partner at the time and being like, you know, I, I really want to invest in this Bitcoin thing. I'm really scared. Like I don't have much money. She was like, okay. Okay. She was like, look, she was like. You can take a shot on this and if it doesn't work out, like it, it's going to suck. You're going to, you're going to lose some money and you're going to be sad about it. She was like, but if you don't take this shot and Bitcoin moons, like you're, you're going to hate yourself forever. It's going to be so hard. And I remember with that, I was like, okay, like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take this risk, risk on myself. And say, you know what? I deserve to have a kind of money that people can't take from me. I, I deserve to try to save what I can outside of the fiat world because yeah. I can't win in that rat race. And when I made that decision to actually buy into Bitcoin, to put my net wealth into it, it was such a liberating feeling, not because I knew I was going to get rich or anything, but because I finally made a decision to fight back against the system that had been exploiting me yeah. for so long. And it felt deeply empowering. Yep. And that was like the first, the first little iota of strength I felt against yeah. the system that had been. What well, was that? When, was that when you bought the Bitcoin or like, was that when you like moved them to a hardware wallet or what, like what, at what point did that happen? That, that was specifically when uh, I had like bought a little bit of Bitcoin. I was feeling comfortable with it, but this was like when I was going to shove the full amount of my savings into it, which at the time <laughs> was, you know, like ten, ten thousand dollars And then also 
in that I actually took out uh, several lines of credit at 10% interest to like buy Bitcoin specifically. And this was like in 2013, I think. So um, oh, lucky you. you know, <laughs> yeah, well, lucky. there's nothing lucky about it. It's it's because of your bulls that you made that decision, right? So, well, it's funny because so I, I feel like I was such a, a, a bitch about it. You know, like, why didn't I go deeper? Why didn't I try harder? Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, but at the end of the day, like I, that was a very substantial risk for me at the time, including leveraging myself. It, it worked out. And the most interesting thing to me is that like all of this came about to me because, you know, and the, like, this is where stuff gets weird is that like, I sincerely had my own transcendental experience where in it, I was like specifically told like pursue Bitcoin with everything. Yep. And ironically, the other one I was told at the same time was like, also like put your hands in the soil, like figure out how to be a farmer. And so like, that's what I've done for the last 10 years is, is I've learned how to grow and cultivate food for myself. And I've learned how to grow and cultivate my wealth for myself by understanding nice. both of these systems together. And it's really interesting how they, they intermesh with each other, you know, and it, and it was all about taking the responsibility for myself in terms of what my health is, both in a financial sense and in a direct bodily sense. Nice. Uh, and I guess you enjoy both, uh, still. <laughs> oh man. Uh, like, uh, I, Bitcoin be becoming this really interesting, uh, like obligation and difficulty. Cause I don't know about you, but for me speaking publicly about it, I feel a bit shy about it just because yeah. of getting that attention directed at me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's in a, a double edged like, sword. Definitely. Yeah, in addition to like, you know, I, I live on the Lost Coast in California, like amongst Redwoods and like, like immediately across the street from my house is uh, an 80,000 acre forest that I love to play in. And so like, I just want to huck everything in the ocean and just like run out there naked and go play. But I know that, but I know I have an obligation here, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to speak my truth courageously. Yeah. I think that that's important because. I very much believe people like you and me have been given the spiritual mission to tell people the truth about Bitcoin and to help ensure its existence in the world. And I think that yes. at least for me, like this is the most profound mission that could have been given to me. And it calls me to be a bigger person than I would have yes. ever asked myself to be otherwise. Yeah. And it's insanely rewarding. The financial reward is just a tiny, tiny part of the real reward, which is just being able to have conversations like this one on a day. Oh yeah, basis. man. Like that, that is so, so fucking good. The, the, like Alan Farrington says, like the yield is the friends you make along the way. That is such a, such a true statement because I mean, the network of people you have, like, and that's the funny thing. If Bitcoin goes away tomorrow, we're still here. All of us, like, and we still know this about one another that this is a person I can trust. Like if I needed to trust you with all the money I, I had in the world, I would because I trust you. Like, because I know you're the real deal. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, and this is yeah. like, this is true for the hardcore maxis that, that you, you just know that, uh, that's a real, that's a real, that guy's the real deal. And, well, and it's nothing to do with technical skills or anything. It's just this. Hey, ethical real deal thing going on yes and and, and you know returning to, to some of the philosophical stuff to me what bitcoin is is, is and this is interesting through kind of a uh, heideggerian ontology is that 
Bitcoin truly is an ethical predication over all of philosophy. Mm-hmm. It insists that ethics must lead philosophy first, and that through leading in that way, we transform all of society together. Yeah. And and very similar, you know, like uh, when I went to Miami for the first time, me and Gigi met, and like within five uh, yeah. minutes, we're like holding hands and hugging and, and crying and stuff, you know, and it's... Yeah. It's because like it, it truly is, in my opinion, the most profound thing that we can come out of this world where before Bitcoin, I was convinced like there's nothing positive. We're here to exploit each other. There's no purpose or greater meaning to this world. Like it's all just theft and stealing and lying and killing, you know, and, and I sincerely was quite suicidal. And like, I probably would have made that decision had I not found Bitcoin and have it really introduced me to there is a bigger reason. There is a bigger way to do it. And more importantly, all of that darkness that I saw was part of that narrative that was given to me. And when I started connecting with other Bitcoiners, it lit me up in a way that was infinite. I, I had never experienced something as profound, you know? And so John and I, John Vallis and I, yeah. we were walking back after the first night in Miami. And like we had had dozens of people come up to us and thank us and say that they really appreciated our work. And we're walking back and I was like, wow, that was like really intense, wasn't it, John? Like I having all these people come up like fanboying at us. And he kind of snapped me. He was like, they weren't fanboying at all. He was like, they were really appreciating us. Like we, we really helped them and gave them something powerful that helped change the way that they see the world. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right, John. Like, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. And I just, I can't help but think about how many more people there are out there that are just waiting for somebody to to come to them and go, look, I get the Bitcoin thing is weird, but look deeper into it. There's really huh. deep meaning and purpose here. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally relate to all of that. It's, it's, uh, it truly is. Uh, it truly changes you and changes the way you, you view other people. So uh, back to, to uh, a thing you said in the beginning of, of that segment. Uh, that you were suicidal because of the narrative you had been spoon-fed, sort of. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think the anger stems from that? That this the system almost killed you? Like, I think that's part of it. Um, you know, I, I it's hard because so much of the anger also comes from seeing what the truth is and having it denied to you again and again and again. And what's so different about Bitcoin is that now, even amongst those lies, you can say, you're wrong. I'm going to put my money into this thing that you don't understand. And then when it turns out that, you know, it can go up 10x or 20x or whatever, and you make a bunch of money, instead of people realizing, understanding you took a substantial risk and are trying to understand something different, they just write you off as being lucky, you know? And I think that this estrangement from logic in its deepest sense and us denying it through uh these very various narratives that we've been given is uh such a deep and profound wound to the human soul because like we're we're here to pursue truth and when everything in the world lies to us it uh it becomes a deeply crushing and you know rage inducing experience one of the, the, the most depressing things I, I think about with, uh, is like the mis- misconceptions about Bitcoin's energy consumption. <laughs> oh, so called energy. When, when the, like the literal consensus mechanism of fiat money is world wars <laughs> and how much yeah. energy that consumes. Like it's, it, 
it's so like, like here you have an equation that does the conversion from energy to consensus and a finite number uh, pretty spectacularly efficiently. Like the efficiency of that thing is just this is this is how you are incentivized to follow the rules and not cheat the system because it's costly. It's it's that simple. It's very 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 pure, and you have this other this legacy world which is nothing like that. We 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 have these world wars in order to get consensus of who gets to price the oil that we run the container ships with shit from China to give each other as Christmas gifts every year. Like that's so well, you have and to me like. I, I was just going to say, to me, that's one of the things that makes it metaphysical too. Cause like, like, why is it these consensus mechanisms are literally the opposite? Like Bitcoin yeah. is the most efficient exchange of using energy to get consensus. And war is literally the least efficient mechanism to create yeah. consensus. And it's like, whoa, why is that happening? And to me, like, this is the logical concourse of what happens yeah. when we become in, entirely consumed in a world where authority, not truth, is the bearer of legitimacy. And yes. that's why we can just go into this insanity. And yeah, seeing people like Greenpeace defending literally the petrodollar against Bitcoin, it's just, it's yeah. madness. It's true madness. And it's, and it's so upsetting. And they're sponsored by XRP. <laughs> uh, how, how, how obvious is that uh, corruption of that institution? Like, to, to us, Bitcoiners, it's completely obvious. They are doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing. If they're for green and if they're for peace, they should be, they should be more pro-Bitcoin than any other organization in the world. Because yeah. Bitcoin will bring green and Bitcoin will bring peace. It's like, to me, like if, if you don't want Nazism around, don't be, a, don't be a nationalist and don't be a socialist. Like It's that simple. <laughs> like, if you remove those two, we're fine. <laughs> and if you want Greenpeace, go Bitcoin. Well, and, and this goes to show that like, uh, and this is the really sad thing is, is that even an organization like Greenpeace that presents those such, like, this is all just more narrative bullshit. Like, these people don't give a fuck about the environment. They give a fuck about looking like they care about the environment. Yeah. I and think and, they and to be clear, like, I don't, I don't think that they're trying to like pull a fast one in that line. I think they sincerely believe all of this. But again, that's how stupid, well, I don't want to even say stupid. That's how ignorant they are of what's going on is they can't even stop to go, wait a minute, let me do some uh, reading on Bitcoin and how it works. They just go, hey, media told me Bitcoin's bad and pollutes. Uh, we're going to run off with that. I think they, they were sincere in the first years, but that the institution, all, like all other institutions, they become corrupt over, over time because they, the incentive structure of the system that, that feeds them allows these psychopaths to become the uh, in to to get these top positions in these uh, organizations so it's very likely that you get a psychopath on top that's just there to to fool everyone and make uh, make a quick buck for themselves and i think that's well, definitely that's the case with greenpeace because it's obvious it's just been bribed by some shit coiner and, and taking the money and now they're doing this stupid campaign and yeah go ahead change the fucking code see if i care <laughs> yeah yeah I, you're welcome to make make another shit coin. We we don't care. Yeah. Uh, that note on 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 these psychopaths becoming on top of an organization. To me, again, this is why Bitcoin's so important. Is that uh, like I think that this idea of like who our friends are and who our enemies are 
Uh, like we fundamentally can't tell there's no way like there can be other people that look like humans, but are essentially monsters in humans clothing and yeah. they will lie, cheat, steal, and do everything in their power for that. Yeah. So what do you do when you encounter these people? Well, it turns out that Bitcoin is a great solution to that. Cause even if they are lying and cheating and stealing, they still can't modify the system. No. If I, they, if they still can't violate the sacrosanct of my private key, you yeah. know, and furthermore, no, no. It's, it's, it's more, it's cheaper for them to play by the rules than to try to cheat them. So that's, that's exactly. Well, and like, this is, this is the signaling that's so important is that like now existing in a system where we have true law vis-a-vis cryptography, the system's level and the current system we're in the psychopaths and the liars and the stealers and the cheaters, they all get a leg up because that's a benefit in this system. There's a reason that we see white collar crime conducted so thoroughly and such little punishment happening and it's because this is how that system works yeah uh, speaking about psychopaths have you seen the movie what's it called nightcrawler no i've not uh it's a it's a very good depiction i'm of familiar with it though yeah uh, jake gyllenhaal plays the lead role uh mm-hmm. and, and the thing is that there's sort of the it's sort of a depiction of how the uh the system rewards psychopathy in certain uh, industries. Uh, and uh, the thing is, if if that wasn't the case, a, a psychopath would still exist. But if it was better for the psychopath to follow the rules, the psychopath would follow the rules because the psychopath is not there, uh, is not deliberately, you know, just being evil. It's just being egotistical and doing whatever he thinks is best for himself. So if the best path for the to- a psychopath to take is to follow the rules, then the psychopath would follow the rules. They're not masochists, like they're they're not sadists. They're they're just extremely egocentric. And if you have a system that that rewards you when you're being good, then a, a very egocentric pe- person would just be good, like because that would be a more benefit to them. So I think that uh, yeah, that's a beautiful aspect of it. Too. Well, and that, that's what classical society was up until statism was, was essentially people yeah. that were these aggressive, egotistical psychopaths would find themselves at the top of the hierarchical power because it aligned. But what's more interesting is that through those behaviors, because we used to be closer to truth, that we could be like, yeah, there's a bunch of psychopaths shit going on here, but they're actually building and doing other stuff too. Whereas today, like, I think we just get all of the disbenefits of it, of that, like, we have a psychopath that instead of them needing to provide real value to society on a whole in order to maintain that position, because otherwise we'll come along and chop off their head. We don't have access to that anymore, you know? So like we get, we get the Hillary Clintons and we get, we get all of these nasty career politicians that can lie repeatedly and steal repeatedly because they know they won't be held accountable in any meaningful way. You know, and so like I, I, as an anarchist and somebody who has deep rage sometimes, like I would love to see individuals choose to take the power on themselves to enact justice against these people because it will never happen inside of the system. And I think that that's really important no. because, you know, like here in the United States, we had a man who was part of a political system who helped people in political and economic power systematically rape children. And he committed suicide in jail, and there was never any follow-up investigation. Oh, yeah, that you know, like uh, I'm not very f- familiar with the Epstein case. I'm not uh, 
read up on it enough. It's like, like it seems like to me, it's like that's an American thing and like an American. It, it is it's a, a distinctly disgusting thing. But what yeah. I'm trying to present is that the most heinous crimes are committed by the most powerful people. Yeah. And yeah. nothing will ever be done about it. No. And that we need to come to terms with that and understand that Bitcoin is one of the one ways we can actually meaningfully fight back against these people and strip yeah. them of their power. Yeah. So, so what in in your mind? What's where's the line between revenge and justice? Ooh, that's a good question. In all honesty, I think a lot of it ends up being uh, subjective toward the actual situation and the people involved. You know, like I think it depends on who the victim is, who the perpetrator is, what how that is occurring, how the perpetrator yeah. is expressing themselves, how the victim is expressing themselves. Have you read The Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard, by any chance? I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I have not read it. I can highly recommend it. It's like, uh, it makes very logical arguments for why the victim is the only one that could de decide on the punishment for the perpetrator. Like, that, it's, it should be up to the victim to tell nice. what kind I... of punishment. And the punishment cannot be above double the damage that the perpetrator did. So, so he can, he can do an eye for an eye plus a hundred percent more. Uh, and so that's two, like two, two eyes for an eye. Yeah, exactly. And, but that's, that's the, uh, the absolute maximum he can logically and ethically claim. Um, but in, in most cases in a system that worked like that, the, the victim would not do that. Like it's, it's very unlikely that someone would actually take an eye for an eye. Uh, because mm. what's happening now is that uh, what we're paying for an eye is like, uh, okay, with a big uh, tribal tattooed guy uh, uses a knife and cuts your eye out. With a police force, which you are paying for, comes, throws him in jail, a jail that you are paying for, and you pay for his food and his uh, <laughs> his guards and everything. The maintenance of the the prison for well, uh, the longer he is in prison, the more the more you pay, <laughs> or the longer you have to pay, because every citizen pays for the uh, every victim's loss of property. Like <laughs> we collectively pay everything, uh, and the real the real big criminals get away. The ones who wage wars, which are always the worst form of crime there is. Like uh, mass murder is worse than murder. It's obvious. You think yeah, so. well, and to me, also, just putting people in cages is not a solution to, to any crime that's been committed. You know, per, perhaps it protects people from dangerous individuals, but I also struggle to grok that. And so I think it's really important that, you know, and again, with this idea of, of justice and forgiveness, like I, I really want there to be a space open to people so that they can be forgiven for, for whatever transgressions they've had. You know, it's not to say that everybody can be forgiven, but uh, I just don't see how locking somebody in a cage and torturing them is going to offer anything of value to society. Um, no. Furthermore, like it, it, it seems so. Uh, I think the irresponsibility of law enforcement, particularly here in the United States, is uh, horrendous. You know, the fact that we have these men in blue who are literally non-trained idiots who yeah. make a choice to gun down anybody at any point in time that they feel in danger. I mean, it's ludicrous, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and the, the very idea of even attaining justice in this country at this point in time is so estranged and foreign to us 
that I have no idea how we even get back to it. And I also think that that's a large product of the, the deep and systematic rage that we see expressed in the system, you know, is that there's such an estrangement from what the very idea of justice is at this point in time that many of us think it's not even a possibility. Absolutely. What, what, what do you think about the, uh, the, um, uh, way they do justice in the Arab countries, for instance, that like there's no crime in Dubai. You can leave your Porsche with a, with a key and, uh, and because they chop people's hands off if they steal stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm compromised about it because on one hand, uh, like there's a real danger of like chopping off the hands of people who didn't commit crimes. Yeah. Uh, but like we, we cannot deny the fact that like this seems to be an effective mode of detracting from that sort of punishment. And this is one of the things that like, look like capital punishment isn't something that I want to advocate for, but I got to point at the fact that it resolves a lot of the generalized economic problems that we have in a justice system towards trying to provide housing and food and all these other things to the people that we put in cages. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I personally have no interest in enacting the, the cycles of violence for any system or justice. The way that those things do get resolved, you know, as I said, like, I, I think it's really about the victim and the perpetrator and finding, you know, essentially the negotiation of finding how do we get justice out of that? So you would love the ethics of liberty. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to hear that. I'm pretty well aligned with you know, what yeah. I would expect praxology to, to present around such things. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill app. Stack friends who stack stats. Meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill app. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill app helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. The best part is it maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to subscribe to access the app, you know that everyone there is high signal and cares about Bitcoin. A great new feature is events. You can now create local events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app to help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open-source, non-custodial desktop Bitcoin wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. Double check that link. That's wasabiwallet.io. Uh, Luke, uh, have you been thinking about anything in particular here during this conversation? Is, is there anything you'd like to ask Eric about? Like, well, the, the, the first thing on top of mind is, is that, uh, and we're, we tend to be pretty bad at this generally of, of actually properly introducing our guests, but can you give a, <laughs> after what, one hour and 10 minutes, there's the introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can you give the cliff notes to any of our, uh, listeners and viewers who aren't familiar with your work already, Eric? Sure. Uh, my name is Eric Tathan. I've been involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem since 2012. I was at Coinbase for four years, and then I was at Unchained Capital for a year. 
I have a series of essays that you can see at cryptosovereignty.org. I'm compiling all of these essays into a larger book that essentially takes an ontological approach towards Bitcoin and specifically the idea of how cryptography itself creates a new form of sovereignty through the digital space and why Bitcoin is the first social contract found within that. Can we uh, dig into that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, please uh, tell us uh, what's the what's the thesis? What's the <laughs> that's a right. wonderful, wonderfully autistic answer? Can we dig into that? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, yeah, it, I would love it. Well, like, give give me your thirty second pitch on Bitcoin, and I'm like, yeah. oh Jesus yeah, Christ, yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna. And, I, and I'm like, and this is why God is gonna save you with Bitcoin. And they're like, okay, you need to to back up. Um, Really what it is, is that, you know, and this is a, it's continually developing is that first and foremost, the way that I understand Bitcoin is through reading an, an Italian philosopher named Giorgio, Giorgio Ambigen. And he has a whole series called Homo Secur, which Homo Secur is about, uh, these individuals found throughout human history that have been labeled by the law as people that can be legally executed and that you can legally rob them. Oh, and so when we, so slaves basically. Well, no, because slaves actually had more rights than these people. Because as being an object of ownership under somebody else, like I can't just rob oh, your slave and stab them. I'm violating. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. So, so it would be uh, the Swedish word would be leave again, and that's that's been around in the, since the Vikings. Like it's somewhat okay. outside of the law that you can do whatever you want to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's the, exactly the idea. They're outside of the law because the gods no longer protect them or have any surety over them. And, and one of the ways that that could happen was through breaking your oath. Because once you broke your oath, you had betrayed the gods. And so the only way I could honor the gods is by killing you because you had broken your oath to the god. So Ambigan traces these people throughout all of human history. And he pretty much comes to the conclusion that the state always already has the right reserve to itself to label anybody that it doesn't like as being an enemy of the state. And once that happens, you can destroy them and steal all of their stuff. And so if we trace the concourse of the 20th century, we can see that genocide after genocide after genocide, it was always predicated on this behavior of labeling people in such a way so that you can put them outside of the law so you can steal all of their stuff and kill them. And so Bitcoin now allows us a very radical response to this by being able to have our wealth directly imbued into the internet vis-a-vis cryptography which as you've presented earlier, nobody can know how many Bitcoin you have or where it's stored because of the way that the private key operates. And so to me, this opens all of humanity up to a much greater opportunity to reorganize ourselves on uh, political lines that aren't clear yet. It's very important that uh, we don't allow for that to prevent us from fighting the fiat system on a whole, that we need to move forward with making the choice to destroy it and knowing that there will be some political entity that manifests itself through its own collapse. Okay, so that's uh, deep implications, I guess, for the nature of the state as a whole. I, I like the historical side to this here. Uh, while while you were, yeah, saying uh, the the concept, uh, I, I would assume there's there's a, a Roman or Italian example. Uh, I, I can instantly think of the the Scandinavian or Viking example as well. And uh, so so, what are you drawing as a as a conclusion for how Bitcoin 
works into this and solves this problem. Just quickly before, like the Jews of Nazi Germany is a perfect example of this as well, right? Absolutely. I, the, the Jews are actually a quintessential example because I am, and I have a great essay called The Sovereignist Subject in Crypto Power is Jews always by their very fundamental existence in Nazi Germany, they were always going like the, the final solution was always an inevitable conclusion of what Nazism was going to do because there was never a way for the Jews to actually get integrated into German society in a meaningful way, nor would the Nazis welcome that. So they were always going to come to the conclusion that they were going to kill them. Same thing with the Rwandan genocide toward the Hutus, uh, same thing with, uh, actually, you know, guys, you know, the Hiroshian genocide, uh, that happened in Africa by the Germanies in the 1910s. Same thing that happened in the Ottoman gen genocide against the Kurds. You know, every single time we see people because of how they are as peoples, they'll be labeled as enemies to be destroyed. I, I, I yeah, sorry for interrupting this in the thought of no, no, I immediately come to think of the East Bloc and the Soviet Union. Where basically every citizen was exactly that, because the the uh, the the good of the collective, the good of the state, the good of the, the overarching idea was more important than the people in it. So so that yes. e effectively everyone was a criminal. It's just a giant prison. Well, and this is what's really interesting. Is this is the transformation that we have from citizens to subjects. Because as citizens, oh, yeah, we're yeah. always supposed to have access to true political power where we can counter it. And subjects were always, were always a thing that is underneath and beneath the law. And so as a thing that is underneath and beneath the law, we can always be stripped of our political rights to be destroyed and robbed. And so Bitcoin offers a very radical solution to this because when those moments arise, when essentially the state is communicating, Hey, we're going to come after you, steal all your shit and kill you. Or, you know, in the case of more recently seeing a war break out in a place like Ukraine, we also saw people from both sides of that conflict flee from the area, you know, fleeing essentially with their lives at threat. And if they return, they will be killed. They were able to flee with some amount of their wealth still intact. And that is something that is brand new to the theater of war that we haven't seen before. And to me becomes one of the most important transformational things that really displays its true power is that the state can't just use physical violence to extract your Bitcoin from you. And we haven't had a form of wealth like that in the world before. No, and, and uh, speaking of people fleeing from the Ukraine war, one of the most powerful things like this is the, the power of social media and Bitcoin uh, together. And that is a picture of a. Uh, uh, no, you, I don't remember if it was a Ukrainian guy or a Russian guy. It doesn't really matter. He was trying to flee the conflict and he's uh, stuck in customs. And there's a picture of a briefcase with a gold bar, uh, a ton of rubles and a ton of dollars and a ton of euros. And the state came and confiscated it all. So he's trying to escape with his wealth. And in the comment section below the picture, it's like, look at this stupid fucker who can't remember 12 words all over the place. <laughs> like, And that's that's how Bitcoin gets into the minds of people. Because next time, like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? So, so, uh, and I think that's so powerful because other people will see that. And when the fucking civil war starts happening in their country and they need to flee, they will remember that picture. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, that, and that's really, really powerful. 
Yeah. And to me, like the, this is essentially the, the acknowledgement that like that possibility of a civil war is always over us and we need to meaningfully acknowledge it because if we don't and we find ourselves in that place, like there's a deep crisis that now ensues where we could possibly lose everything. And I think it's really important that people understand that that is a reality. You know, I think if you talk to somebody who lived in Kiev five years ago and said, hey, there's, you know, this place is going to be bombed out in five years, they wouldn't necessarily believe you. No, of course not. Like, stability is always an illusion to some extent. We don't know about the future. That's the future is well, always I'm, uncertain. That's that's the nature of the future. And this is sort of a scary and more dangerous one to present, but also like that can happen to you individually. Like, look, and like, this is really fucked up, but like somebody could come to say, hey, it turns out that this individual, they're molesting kids or hurting other people. The moment an accusation in our current world is leveled at you, you're fucked. Like, so people can start shutting down your bank accounts. You can get arrested. You can have your property stolen from you. And when that can happen to you, not only is it deeply alarming and troubling, but you don't have access to any of your resources again. And so one of the things I always try to tell people is like, look, you need to have some amount of Bitcoin as like your emergency backup thing where your house has literally caught on fire and you don't have anything where you have been captured by federal agents and you're arrested and you can't talk to a lawyer. Like you need to have those 12 words memorized for in the situation where there is nothing you can do to rescue yourself from it. If you have those 12 words, you can at least access some amount of money that could possibly help you get out of a situation like that. Yeah, when you put it like that, it's insanely powerful. Like the thing to have, like historically, being well connected has been a uh, get out of jail free card. Like having lots of friends in lots of places is always a good good thing. But but if you can't access those friends, then what can you do? Like, well, you can remember twelve words, as you say. 12 magic words. That's that's it. It's so beautiful. Well, it's amazing because we talked a little bit earlier about uh, the nature of secrets. And it's really interesting to acknowledge that uh, the power of a secret itself by the by the very fact that you can have something that's a secret. And to me, like that's one of the very interesting corollaries that that the power of Bitcoin has versus the general power of potentiality in the world that like. If you know a very particular secret, you know, whether it's the secret of how to make great art, uh, actually you specifically how to make great music, uh, you know, like, like this secret is about a technique of knowing and understanding something in such a way so that you are empowered. And so as a musician, if you go stand up to play, play something, you can unveil the methodology that you have towards your art in the same way that you unveil the methodology of your private key day that well i think these things actually have yeah. a very important and interesting relationship yeah the 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 difference between a secret knowing a secret and being knowledgeable is is very thin this it they're they're very much alike and if if i know for instance that a game a, a boxing game is rigged that, that bruce willis will uh, voluntarily fall in the third round you know <laughs> then i can make a lot of money off of that game so, yes, so, exactly. so, so that's, that's a secret that is valuable indirectly. But the funny thing about Bitcoin, and then this is in one of my books, I don't remember which one, but, but that the secret itself is valuable. So, so it's, it's directly connected to the value of just keeping a secret.
And it's, uh, yes. Yeah. And it's so insanely, when you think about secrets in that way and secrets being knowledge like that, that's another testament to that you are the Bitcoin. And so is everyone else in Bitcoin, which means we are the same thing. We're just, you know, maintaining each other's knowledge or secrets or whatever you may call it. It's, it's just, <laughs> yeah. There's it, a lot really, to unpack there. I, I just find it so funny that, uh, you know, like, like this could all sound very woo, like I'm Bitcoin, you're Bitcoin. Like yeah, you yeah, all, yeah. It sounds too I, I admit that. It well, sounds, what's funny is that like start. at the bottom though, it's just all mathematical knowledge. Like it, it's yeah. the most opposite of the new AG that we can actually Yeah, get. exactly. It's just logic. It's, it's, it's the logic of game theory and mathematics, basically. Like in game well, theory. Well, to me like the. Which is, this is one of the metaphysical things about the universe that I find so extraordinary is that like, it turns out that like, at the very end, we actually are all the same thing that we can prove it. And that like, even in the bottom of all of this insanity, that like the, the deepest, deepest truth that there is in this nihilism is that we actually are one and we actually do share yeah, yeah. and there actually is a universal truth. Yeah. And that we can actually change and liberate ourselves from all yeah. of this. And so what a beautiful gift to be given in this world today, that we get to rescue ourselves from this together and find meaning together, and that that is done only through truth and honoring it for what it is. Okay, so let, let's dissect the word truth. To, to me, truth and un, true and untrue are the binary of human language so so there are one and a zero one is true zero is not true so that and we define every other word in our language using those two so like they, you can't go deeper into the communication tools of a human being than true and untrue so to me there is no such thing as you know uh, and that's a case for objective truth existing <laughs> like because we need we need the words true and false to describe anything else like any any conversation would be meaningless if we didn't have the same attitude towards the word true <laughs> so we all i think we all intuitively know what true means it means like not false mm -hmm. uh, and not false is like uh to a certain extent, subjective, because we all interpret the universe in different ways, and we have our subjective experiences of, and you can go to to uh, uh, Descartes here and say that we can't even uh, prove that other people exist at all, <laughs> uh, uh, and you can go layers of deep deepness here, but but at at the core, I think like in order for conversations to be valuable at all, uh, they need. Uh, we need to to uh, know what the other person means by true and false, because everything else is is predicated on that. So would would you Absolutely. agree with that? Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the reasons that essentially why Bitcoin has been necessitated and why it uses cryptography as its lex is that the the distance between what is true because like we just have these shitty English words least in this situation yeah, yeah. to try to try to actually align to you know if i say hey look at that white horse over there that you can go and look and you see a white horse the problem is is what's the shade of white how big are its hooves how how big is the perceptual yeah. difference in that there are all of these places where everything can get slightly misaligned 
yeah. and that this causes for massive problems. And Heidegger pointed this out, that, that this is the difference between understanding cr- truth as correctness versus truth as nature. All and right. so I think, and I think one of the reasons is, is that essentially in a nihilistic world where man has the capacity to lie and we don't have a high resolution language that can allow for us to define and distinguish when something is true and when something is false. This is created for a massive problem, particularly in economics, where there's such a high incentive to be able to lie. And so that by now using cryptography as the lex for Bitcoin for us to speak truth to each other, we're now using a cryptographic proof in order for that to be said. And now I know that the truth no longer is just the most correct way. But the truth is naturally found in the proof itself in cryptography and that that's totally binary. There is only a yes, it has been proven. No, it is not proven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now with this much more hyper-focused language, if you will, there becomes a capacity to see a much more radicalized capital T truth that speaks through this lex of cryptographic proofs, which now paired with the humanness of what's going on we now have an extremely powerful tool to be able to interact with each other in not just economic ways, but in all sorts of social ways as well. Okay, so so give me the TLDR on uh, Heideggerian philosophy. Like, what what was Heidegger's main like talking point? His shtick. His shtick. His, his whole exactly. shtick was was, was uh, essentially shtick. that like. The most quintessential experience of being human, our essence, is what it means to be, to exist. What does it mean for us to live in our lives here in the day-to-day and the experiences that we always have? And so his first major piece was, was time and being. And in that, he sort of presents the idea that the angst of existence and needing to reflect on the fact that we're beings that will die and we only exist temporally has great significance and importance of it. Because the difference between us and the animal is that we can self-reflect on our death and allow for us to, to have that transform what our experience in the here and now is. Whereas animals don't have that same... How, how do we ha- know that though? How do we know that an animal doesn't reflect on death? That's a good point. I, I don't, I, I'm trying to think if he covers that at any point in time, I but mean, I think it's because, go ahead. I know, I, I know the praxeological uh, explanation of why, why animals don't have the same rights as humans because they don't really claim them. So they're not participating in catalactic competition on the free market the way we are. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for that, but like, yeah, I, my philosophy, you know, I, I call myself an atheist sometimes, and sometimes a lot of people misinterpret what I mean by that because they think, oh, oh, oh so then you uh, believe in Darwinism and the Big Bang and stuff like that. No, I'm just not right. subscribing to a certain idea. It says nothing about my beliefs. It just says something about my disbeliefs. And to me... I came to really appreciate the difference between how Europeans see atheism and how Americans see atheism. Because it's very different because of our own historical context. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I found this very interesting. Uh, And I think also because in America, churches have not been taxed. Uh, uh, When you could call yourself a religion, you weren't taxed. So so I think religious, uh, specifically Christian ideas, have survived longer in America because of that. 
for good and mm -hmm. bad. Like you get all these TV preachers with too much hairspray as well that are completely bonkers and just try to sell stuff and drive and fly private jets. And that's obviously not good. But then again, we, maybe we in Europe lost something, um, especially in the like by by losing, and maybe like especially Scandinavians became more nihilistic by replacing. I, the danger is. Uh, you throw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, as Peterson says, and uh, people long for for an answer to stuff. So instead of clinging on to the religion, they cling on to statism. And the way I see it is statism is just another religion, maybe the worst one yet. I don't know if it is the worst one, but it's, pr but it's definitely bad and it's definitely religious. And it's definitely, yes. you know, collectivism and flock behavior. And that's the danger. So to me, there's like no, no difference between being a libertarian, being an atheist in that sense. It's, it's, the, it's two expressions of the same, you know, no, wait, but why? I don't buy what you're saying. I want to form my own opinion. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, just take things at face value. And I think the danger lies in so many human beings long for there to be a free lunch. Everyone wants there to wants the lunch to be free. So they want answers to stuff that they cannot have answers to and they cannot know. So because these deep questions about death and life are so, are so hard and so why did my sister die? Why did my mother die? All of this, it's, it's hard and it's tough for human beings. So they, they, have a, they want there to be a free lunch. They want there to be a shortcut to an explanation of why stuff happened. And, and I think it's this longing for a free lunch that makes it so easy for psychopaths to control other people. So ceremonial burial, for in instance, when you can raise a gravestone and say that this person died here, then you give that person an identity and all of a sudden you can send 18-year-olds out to war because you get a big nice tombstone in the in the afterlife you'll you'll be happy <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and you can see this in civilized early civilizations as soon as they invent ri uh, ritual burial they they conquer other other tribes and they grow very fast so so it's a very dangerous dangerous thing that can be exploited very easily by psychopaths and that's why I, why i have such a hard time with like this longing for there to be a free lunch it's a little heartbreaking to see how uh, that desperation for that free lunch, how like it really leads into an even darker place by then being misled by these psychopaths who essentially yeah. want to take advantage yeah. of us. And religion is one of the best ways to do that is to say, hey, yeah, like, yeah. if you just follow what I say about, you know, yeah. this God, yeah. whether he's Muslim or Christian or Catholic yeah. or whatever, uh, you'll get you'll get to go to the afterlife and have a heaven. Yeah. And you don't have to think about any of this. Um, and I think that, the, you know, this is a very, very dangerous idea. And, and that danger explicitly comes from now we've divorced ourselves from truth again. Yeah. We've returned to a space where we've allowed for an authority to choose what is legitimately true for us. Exactly. And now we're captured in that problem. And yeah. to me, like a lot of my work deals with this, uh, Hobbesian idea of uh, essentially through a reading of Leviathan. In that, he says that what the state is and its true power is, is that it can determine that authority, not truth, creates its legitimacy. And that's why it can say whatever it is, 
create value out of nothing vis-a-vis fiat. And this is the truest problem is that when we start mistaking authority as truth, and this is that same function as truth as correctness, we've now estranged ourselves from the truth that is nature. And we're replacing that truth that is nature as truth as authority. Oh, the, the beautiful thing about this is that, that, that those sentences perfectly describe why I loved mathematics in school and I hated the, the, the social sciences. Because in mathematics, correctness and natural truth were the same thing. There was a correct answer to the question because it correctly reflected what was actually true. <laughs> like, th- there's no way to cheat mathematics. So, yeah, and uh, that's why it's so important that we're now speaking in value through mathematics yeah. because there's no capacity to obfuciate or lie around it. It is either a yes, oh. yes, or oh. a no, no. Obfuciate. I must remember that for my next book. It's a wonderful word. But <laughs> And the thing is, when I found praxeology and Austrian economics through Bitcoin, all of a sudden there was this realm of subjective valuations and a science that was as hard and as truthful as mathematics, but for the subjective experience of being human, basically, or for human action. So it starts from these undeniable axioms, and you get the same. And that's why all of a sudden everything started to make sense. Oh, holy shit. The social sciences weren't sciences. They were opinions. All of them. Like, all the time, that was just an opinion. And you can't really do it that way because you have to use this a priori deductive reasoning thing. And the same way, like speaking of the religions and uh, the inevitability of death, I think uh, th- this is the theory I lay out in the Everything Divided book about morality and that, and that is that the, the scarcity of our time on this earth is what gives life its value. And, yes. the, uh, and that's my best argument against anything, any being, any omnipotent being, like if, if a being was, uh, could live forever and was in indestructible, uh, a such, such a being, just those two things, indestructible and, uh, would live forever. A being like that would never act because there would be no incentive for such a being to ever act or do anything. So, so what's the point then? Like, so what's the point of even thinking about such a such a thing because like the very thing that makes us act and makes us makes us valuable and makes us value each other and value things and value other people and value ideas is that we're going to die one day if we were absolutely certain that we were never going to die we could always postpone everything indefinitely so we'd never do anything and there would be no truth there would be no value there would be no nothing so that's that's it's funny where because I'm like at. They, this is all deeply Heideggerian, and you almost like hit it right on the head. Is that the fact that we have this limited amount of time is what fundamentally presents value nice. into our lives, you know? And and it's and so like that was his first approach, and his second approach, which is called uh, of contributions to philosophy or the event, is he ta- talks about how there's supposed to be this event that happens in hum- humanity, where essentially humanity comes. To the the truest and the deepest and the fullest conclusion of what logic and reason is in our world, and to me, like this is what Bitcoin is. Like it is the most pristine presentation of logic that we have ever encountered, 
And because of the pristineness of that logic and the profoundness that it offers to us, it becomes the most monumental event in humanity because it returns us from nihilism towards truth. So hang on, you're saying he predicted it? Like he predicted such an event? Just like Milton Friedman predicted like uh, money on the internet? Like, but he predicted it. And it's really interesting because what, what he's talking about He's talking about it through a phenomenological approach. So he's describing all of the different stuff that's going to do and what it has about it, but he never directly presents the presentation of it's going to be this thing and it's going to look like this. He's more or less trying to say there's an event in humanity where man comes to the truest and the fullest conclusion of what logic is. And when he does that, it's going to radicalize him in such a way that peoples are going to start coordinating themselves around it and working together around what this idea is and how it changes people. What was Heidegger religious? Do you know? He was, he originally actually started out, uh, before going into philosophy, he originally wanted to become, uh, a Presbyterian preacher, but after studying that for like four years, he went and studied philosophy under Prusserl in Germany. And then eventually that's where he, he started creating his own work. Because like, this is an idea that is prevalent in a lot of religions, Christianity, not to the least, like there's a, you know, <laughs> judgment day and all of this and then a Messiah and like events that will happen that will be completely awesome. And it's in, it's in the, you know, the Nordic tradition as well. And it's, it's in every religion by the mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an idea that I've had a hard time rep- like believing because like, I think that's, that's also part of the yearning for the free lunch that we, uh, we humans think too much of ourselves and we think that like everything revolves around us. And therefore we have this hubris, this arrogance that makes us think that something special will happen to us at some point. And, uh, <laughs> I cannot say that. Bitcoin has no proven nor disproven my thesis, but it certainly was an event that was unexpected on my behalf. I didn't expect to have like a, for lack of a better word, revelation like that. I still wouldn't call myself religious, but but it's like the closest thing I can imagine like a uh, a, a truly religious experience is like. I mean, well, and I, I want to point out that revelatory knowledge is exactly what I'm talking about. Because before having that revelatory knowledge, none of these problems could exist or could solve themselves in any meaningful way. And then once that click of Bitcoin settling in and you going, oh, like this is, this is logically the conclusion of what all people should want for them economically. And now I'm plugged into this. All sorts of other people are plugged into this. That in and of itself is this event that humanity is coming to where we start to understand how that can counter what fiat is in our world and the way that that has taken over our world. And what's really important about this is that if we came to these same conclusions of logic in the 15th century, it wouldn't do us any good because we don't have any of these tools. No. And so it's really about being at the place where we're in, in development with the internet, with advanced cryptography and with what all those things can do for us as tools in the future. Yeah. Then again, those tools are just extensions of our minds. They aren't really tools. They just, they just help us communicate. 
You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. So yeah. So, so this and the, but the the fascinating thing here is that we come to this revelatory and this black swan event that was Bitcoin, the discovery of of Bitcoin and and finite absolute finiteness and all of this stuff uh, through being skeptical because everything in Bitcoin is based on skepticism. It's based mm-hmm. on anything but belief in in anything. It's based on being skeptical to the ex- to an extreme extent in every every aspect of it, like distrust, don't trust, verify. It's all over the place, which is very 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 scientific and very very not, you know, to me scientific as as opposed to religious. Like we're, there's not nothing dogmatic about the thinking around it. We're we're trying to like solve a problem here how how do we how do we make this completely verifiable so that we don't have to trust any authority or like it's it's removing our so so that's the means to get to this revelatory state where we can all, all of a sudden trust each other on a on a completely different plane and like yeah uh, and like the co- the continuous clearing as well to like make bitcoin into the purest possible thought experiment that we could do yeah like how how can we get become the most scientific that we could and and yes. through that presentation, we then find that, oh, like it turns out we must have cryptography. We need to have the internet. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. have to have all this be logical because once we have all of this, now the same functions of violence that have run all of society for all of human history simply don't function anymore in this system. Well, well, okay. To play the devil's advocate here, because it's always fun. I, I would sure. say we we don't need the internet for this, and not even computers, because you can yeah. do all of it True. with pen and paper yes. and with like smoke signals or a fucking dove. Like mm-hmm. it's possible to do the same thing. It's just that the bandwidth it would be very much slower. There wouldn't be a ten minute interval. <laughs> like the difficulty adjustments would would never yeah, happen it, it, because it, like so. I, I loved a thing that Kalle Rosenbaum said when we were in Norway, Luke, and that is that Bitcoin has always existed. It's just that its hashing power was infinitely small before 2009. Yes, I love and that. Th- that's like, holy fuck, that's true. You, you, you said it as a joke, but that's actually true. Like, it was always here. That all the numbers and everything, all, all the ability to do this was in our heads all the time. We just hadn't figured out which is another way of saying the hashing power wasn't here. It's, it's just, we hadn't, <laughs> hashing power is an idea. <laughs> we had to yeah, wait for just, the idea. Like, <laughs> Well, and this is what's interesting about, uh, so like the last major essay I wrote call, called uh, The Question Concerning Bitcoin, it's modeled off a Heideggerian essay called The Question Concerning Technology. Mm-hmm. And in the introduction itself, he said, what once we can understand the truest power of understanding what technology is as its essence, we will then come to a much closer relationship that leads us through language. And that's one of the things I find so fascinating about Bitcoin is that, like we've been saying, these are all just tools and techniques that we're using. And it turns out that like now that we have this new language, this lex that's created through cryptography, we now have a much, much more powerful way to speak to each other about the nature of value in a way that none of us can violate directly. 
And so again, it's just about the actual essence of what the technology of being able to speak and value presents to us. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, if, if you boil it down, every tool and every technology humanity ever stumbled upon has the same purpose. It's to save someone yes. time somewhere. Like, it's yep. time-saving devices. And mm-hmm. sometimes a tool is used by a third party to save time for them, and you think that it's saving time for you. Like, when you use fiat money, you think you're saving time, but you're actually saving time for someone else. The guy with the money. Well, what, what's like, so weird is that this uh, idea of, of, of... Like, it works very well of saving time on an individual level. That's the whole point. But also, like, on a greater holistic scale like bitcoin itself as the time chain is literally saving time as a scientific idea like it is it is literally more of a clock than any clock that has ever existed before yeah and that's through that approach it is literally saving time itself as a logical mechanism to be able to find the fidelity of what our world is and what time is within that. Well, here's here's an interesting parallel to that because you could argue for or against uh, the time chain being the perfect clock. And in a physics sense, it's not because how we measure time according to physics has much more to do with like the rotation, uh, the rotations around the sun and stuff like that. But the funny thing is in praxeology, when we say the present, when we're talking about the present in a physics sense, we're talking about a specific point in time space. So yes. a very specific point. But in a praxeological sense, the present means from the beginning of an action to the end of an action. So it means, you know, deciding, uh, imagining what a future where you did something happened, deciding on whether to do that or not, and deciding, yes, doing that thing and then experiencing the result of that thing. That is the present. The present is the extended present of the action. And that is what Bitcoin, uh, what the time chain represents as a perfect. The time chain is a re- perfect representation of that, of subjective time and not of any objective time, because you could argue that objective time doesn't exist. Like like uh, Greenwich Meridian doesn't exist either. It's just a line we came up with, like, so there's no such thing. And time moves at different speeds in different places. So you can't really find an origo. But there's a difference between what I'm saying, like objective time and, and, and subjective time. Because there yeah, is well, such a thing so, as a position in time space in relation to other positions in time space. And that's a physics. Well, I mean, it's really interesting to think of this idea praxeologically that Bitcoin is an action that started at the Genesis block and will continue indefinitely into time and space no it started at the beginning of time it just had an infinitely low hash rate right (laughs) yeah you're right right and and through the discovery of being able to add to that hash rate yeah we now essentially have a fork in reality where we can choose to go bitcoin route or fiat route and what's so interesting to me is that fiat route as money being an object in time space because of the way that it fucks with time itself and robs people of time yeah. It then reproject projects itself into the physical world as space, as all the messed up manifestations of fiat. That's why we have such horrific architecture and all sorts of other systematic things is because of the way that we have literally modified space itself yeah. through fucking with time through 
fiat money. Yeah. And now you have to return to this other world that is married directly to the truth through the decision to choose a money that can't be modified in such a way to fuck with time and space. So, so in a way then, are you saying that because fiat fucks with time, it also fucks with space? So that's why yes. the buildings are ugly? Yes. Well, I'm like, that's why everything in space is currently messed up and why, uh, you know, like take any object in my house, like this bottle, like it, there yeah. is no place on it. There is no fundamental way to get an economics of extracting the metal, making the bottle, selling it at bottom low prices, putting that in Costco and delivering it to me. That's not going to work on a Bitcoin standard. That only works on a fiat standard where we fucked with things so thoroughly that we can mess with time scales, that we can subsidize gigantic mining, you know, fuel mining and all that stuff. So, and this is something I've been thinking more about is just the way that fiat money is specifically designed to steal time from people to then project it back into the present to allow for fiat to present itself. So do you think that, uh, th this is a hard question that I'm struggling with too, like what's Fiat necessary for Bitcoin to emerge? Like, what's the yes. fiat par paradigm and this high consumerist focused industrialism that produces the Costco bottle uh, and ev oh, everything else? Was that necessary for Bitcoin to emerge uh, as like a counter a counter to that? Yeah, I, I I believe it did, and I think the reason specifically is that uh, you know, like if we're still on a gold standard and Bitcoin presented itself, I think there's still a very strong argument that people could have that the gold standard exists, but we don't live in that world. The gold standard was defeated, and okay. furthermore, because of all of the way that uh, fiat has created such endemic problems that. Bitcoin only becomes a real solution to those endemic problems against this world of fiat and what it has done to all of us. Okay, what do you think of this then? Uh, we do live in a uh, on a gold standard. It's just that our slaves don't have access to it. It's only for the the, the people that aren't slaves. The the central bankers, they're on a gold standard. <laughs> like so, so they just refuse to give us access to it. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's the most interesting is that like, as they all start figuring out with Bitcoin, that like the game theory of states against states where they all start pointing guns at each other oh. and start trying to accumulate Bitcoin like that, that's where we're going to see the hyperinflation game kick off yeah, 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 in but, a but, really phenomenal way. But that, that doesn't make any sense though, because like the, the obvious best choice is to accumulate Bitcoin and try to make the market as big as possible. Because that, that's the obvious best choice for anyone in it. Like killing someone to steal their Bitcoin will reduce the value, total value of Bitcoins because you remove a market actor. So, so it makes no sense. You know what I mean? Like killing another nation that you could trade with makes no economic sense whatsoever. Uh, on sure. a sound, on I... a sound money standard, at least. Like, so, so, and even if they have the money printer and they can fool a segment of the population, if the, if they see that the, the vast majority of the population is moving to this new thing, then it makes way more sense to just hop onto the same train. Because all the governments are made up of people, so they have to make individual choices. 
do I do I cling on to the do do I stay in the saddle of this dinosaur or do I hop onto this motorcycle here next to it? Like if that's uh, well, and I, I think there's going to be a, a pretty great war that's going to turn out where the, the, you know, the dinosaur riders are not going to get off. They're going to insist that the dinosaur is the best thing ever, even in light of the motorcycle. And I, I think as that happens, there's going to be extraordinary amounts of destruction in not reading the situation appropriately. I am. Um, I try to be optimistic there as well, uh, but. If you if you look at how the Soviet Union fell, it wasn't very violent. It could have been a lot worse, because the violence was before it fell. Like that was all violence. So so the state it like the state is violence. A violent revolution is just a continuation of the. Like, it's just a flipping of the violence that was already going on. Like mm-hmm. so so. And that's why I prefer fast hyper-Bitcoinization to a slow one, because all it is is the removal of violence. Like that's what adopting Bitcoin means. It means you you do not allow as much violence into your life as you used to. Hmm. That's all it is. But I, I think that's such a, a powerful way to present it in such like a low-level thing that like Bitcoin is a choice about using money that doesn't have violence baked directly into it. Yeah, exactly. So so you by by using it, every time someone chooses to use Bitcoin for anything rather than some other type of money, they remove that violence that would have been there had they used fiat. Well, I'm like what what a what a beautiful thing, you know? Like to, to yeah, me, huh. like that's the truest spiritual power that's here is that yeah, we can actually make a choice for nonviolence, you know? Um I find it really interesting that Gandhi's word for uh, the way that he insisted upon presenting the truth in the world and his revolutionary thing was Staturgia. And it starts with Staturgia, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, another funny thing about that uh, that I realized today is that the word for an extra in a movie in Swedish, like the not a real extra uh, actor, but an extra, <coughs> it's called a statist, like a statist. It's lit- The word is literally <laughs> said. So who are you in your movie? Are you a main character or are you a status? Like your choice. Do you want to? Oh, I'm a, I'm a status. I'm, I'm a non-playable <laughs> character. Yeah. I'm not going to break out of the dialogue. Sorry. The show is also sponsored and produced by Consensus Network, the first Bitcoin-only publishing house. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop or consensus.network to see everything Consensus has to offer. We're also always looking for new contributors. Whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to us by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. And finally, you can check out knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut including some great Everything Divided by 21 Million merch and the Infinity Red Limited Edition wine. That's knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut. Eric, we've been going for two hours. I think we should round it off here. This is a, These last five minutes were just golden. I fucking love this conversation, and I'm looking forward so much to seeing you in Miami if you're going. Uh, yes, I, I will think see you're, you in uh yeah, we got to we got to coordinate something to get a bunch of us together so yeah, we can yeah, just yeah. like ramble for twelve hours straight. Yeah, yeah, like, and just go. I, on. Mean, I just find it amazing that like 
I almost always need to get two hours in to feel like I'm finally digging into it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Good luck with any, everything you do, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you both online and in real life next time. I think this has been absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It has been wonderful as well, and I've thoroughly enjoyed my experience speaking with both you gentlemen. It's been uh, been fun just getting to to wrap and seeing where we go. Yeah, awesome here, Eric. Uh, is there anything you'd like to direct our our listeners to? What can they find? Uh, if you've enjoyed any of the crazy stuff I've said, you can find me on Twitter. It's just my name: E R I K C A S O N. That's my handle. Uh, I also have a website. It's cryptosovereignty.org. Uh, I feature many of the essays that will be in my upcoming book. And uh, yeah, I'll be releasing a book probably sometime this summer with Bitcoin Media. And it's just going to be titled Crypto Sovereignty. The, uh, and the subtitle is The Hidden Political Philosophy of Bitcoin. Nice. Absolutely. Cool, guys. Fantastic. Thanks again for joining us. This has been a fantastic two hours. Yeah, perfect. So take care. All right, gentlemen. Have a wonderful day. Be well. (laughs) Same to you. Likewise. With that, this has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening.